From your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 17, Godzilla vs. Gigan. and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm nathan marchand and i'm brian scherschel and in this one oh man this is an episode we've both been looking forward to for a long time isn't it brian yes this is possibly my favorite movie in the entire series this is going to be a great one i think honestly This episode, listeners, is going to blow your minds. This might be one of the most underestimated films in the entire franchise, next to possibly All Monsters Attack. Our related topics for this episode are market penetration and other Godzilla vs. Gigan symbolism, and the 1972 Sapporo Winter Olympics. All right, Brian, uh, get everybody abreast on what's going on in this movie with our short description. You're listening to... Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is the defender of Earth. He displays many anthropomorphisms, most notably, quote-unquote, talking to Anguirus, making him more character than creature. Anguirus is Godzilla's feisty sidekick. He displays some human behaviors, such as, quote-unquote, talking and strategizing. Gigan, a sadistic cyborg kaiju, and King Ghidorah, the malevolent space monster, attack Tokyo under the Nebulon's control. Once the Nebulon's tapes are destroyed, they revert to their usual destructive selves and continue to fight Godzilla and Anguirus. Gengo Kodaka, a creative and cunning unemployed comic book artist, takes a job designing kaiju for World Children's Land. His capable karate-chopping girlfriend, Tomoko Tomoe, assists Gengo and then joins the fight against the Nebulon's. Machiko Shima and her counterculture friend Shosaku Takasugi are searching for Machiko's engineer brother, Takashi, who was caught in the Nebulon's plot. Fumio Sudo and Kubota are ruthless and intelligent Nebulons disguised as humans who conduct a clandestine invasion of Earth. The human and kaiju plots intermix more as the film progresses. The characters have jobs and goals unrelated to the monsters, and initially the story is focused on the mystery surrounding the Nebulons. The JSDF futilely attacks Gigan and Ghidorah with tanks, jets, and masers when the space monsters ravage Tokyo. Godzilla and Anguirus are outmatched when battling Ghidorah and Gigan. The Nebulans use the Godzilla Tower to attack Godzilla with laser beams. After rescuing Machiko's brother, Gengo and company send up explosives in the Godzilla Tower's elevator, destroying the Nebula's command center and stopping the mind control signal. Godzilla and Anguirus then drive Gigan and Ghidorah from Earth. The script by Shinichi Sekizawa used some ideas from a previous story written by Takeshi Kimura. It has many of Sekizawa's trademarks, simplicity, satire, and symbolism, while also featuring a meta-textual commentary on pop culture. The budget was lower than the previous entry in the franchise, Godzilla vs. Hetero. The special effects were handled by Teruyoshi Nakano, who created several impressive miniatures, most notably World Children's Land and the Godzilla Tower. The Ghidorah, Godzilla, and Anguirus suits from Destroy All Monsters were reused, and their age is sometimes apparent. Gigan, however, is an impressively designed kaiju who resembles the more outlandish monsters in superhero TV shows. Stock footage from a number of films was used. 
Sekizawa once again balances satire with moderate gravity. His humor is character-driven as opposed to being slapstick. However, the Nebulans are treated as a legitimate threat. While it has science fiction trappings, it's a fantasy film. This isn't an experimental film because it adheres to many of the tropes of the 1960s Godzilla films, while also borrowing some from superhero TV shows. This movie largely reinforces the style of Invasion of Astro Monster with its story of alien invaders using kaiju as weapons and by having a heroic Godzilla. It also reinforces Ebira Horror of the Deep by featuring young people and lots of action. Producer Tomiyuki Tanaka wanted this film to be a throwback to the series' heyday after the strange Godzilla vs. Hedera. The movie's primary audience seemed to be young people. When released March 12, 1972 in Japan, it sold 1.78 million tickets, which was almost as many as Destroy All Monsters. It made a healthy profit as well. It was released in the U.S. under the title Godzilla on Monster Island by CinemaShares in August 1977. It was frequently shown on American television and released on VHS by several companies throughout the 1980s and 1990s. While fans are often critical of the film, many enjoy it. Initially, several edits were made to the international version to get a G rating, which included muting cussing and trimming the blood splatter during the kaiju battle. Other changes included the removal of the laser visuals in the credits, though the sound effects are left in, moving the scene of Godzilla blasting the camera with his atomic breath from the beginning to the end, and superimposing the end in it, and removing the voice bubbles that appear when Godzilla and Anguirus quote-unquote talk in favor of garbled voices. The film was restored to its original length on home media. Many of the elements in the story seem to be how things are not as they appear. World Children's Land and its malevolent proprietors are potent reflections of the foreign corporations penetrating the Japanese market at the time. The kaiju and peace-themed amusement park serves as a commentary on Godzilla as a pop culture icon. The nebulon seeking to bring perfect peace to Earth by wiping out humanity inspires a statement about how technological advancement is easy, but peace is not. Environmentalism is touched upon with the nebulons coming from a polluted planet. The film depicts ordinary people who rise to the occasion and become heroes. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is our opinion and discussion portion of, for this particular film. So, it's no secret, Brian, I know you love this movie. This might be my favorite film in the Godzilla series. I grew up watching it. It was the first one I'd ever seen. So it was different from any other movie I had ever seen at that point, especially. Uh, and I liked it because of that. It was featured on the Fox TV affiliate, and we recorded it on a VHS tape in the 80s so that I could watch it any darn time I wanted to, because that was the power of VHS. But I absolutely love it. Yeah, this is uh, I, this is also one that I really like, and it's actually one that I find myself liking more after all of the research that we've been doing for this podcast. I didn't come across it on television. This was actually one of the earliest ones I can remember purchasing on VHS when I started collecting these movies. It was interesting for me because I had seen Gigan first in the the next film, you know, in Megalon. So seeing him in this one was it was a, an exciting treat. I think watching these in order, it makes me appreciate it even more because this movie was really a big one if you're you know so far in the series. It really changed the way you look at the series, too. Yeah, and even though in a lot of ways it's, it's trying to harken back to you know the heyday era for the, for the show a series from the 60s, there's a lot of really interesting things in here that I think are overlooked 
by a lot of people who see it. It, it makes up for the offness of the previous few films that we've done. Like, it's a return back to the classics. Yeah, even though I don't think there was necessarily anything wrong with, you know, these previous two very different films. It's just that it just didn't fit with what they were trying to do at the time. Right, and so then, like, they, they brought back King Ghidorah, and that was a really good idea. And Which was... I really like Angris coming back, too. Yeah, well, they could bring Ghidorah back, because this one is set in present day as opposed to the future, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't have to worry about continuity. <laughs> yeah. And then this is uh, Godzilla's first ever foe, and then in the form of Angris, and then we, he's brought back as an ally this time. And then this film was made to entertain, too. And it's the first movie in three years without a little kid. Yeah, because the previous two had had children in them. Yeah, that's okay, too. So first, the original title was Earth Destruction Directive Godzilla vs. Gigan. That's just an awesome-sounding title, by the way. Yeah, it's incredibly good. Then became... That became Godzilla vs. Gigan. And then it was released here in the U.S. under Godzilla on Monster Island. Which makes uh, no sense. No. But I happen to love the Earth Destruction Directive. That's just great. Okay, first let's go into the background of this movie. Original story, that was written by Takeshi Kimura, and it was called Godzilla vs. the Space Monsters Earth Defense Order. And the monster setup at that point was Godzilla and Anguirus versus Ghidorah, Gigan, and Megalon, which some of that got pulled away for the next movie that we're doing. But then Sekizawa's story was called The Return of King Ghidorah, and that was supposed to have Varan, Godzilla, and Rodan against Ghidorah, Gigan, and another monster called Mogu. And then that got pared down a bit, and then uh, we went ended up going with that. The titles in the Japanese version have these uh, laser beams that come out, and we have the words, and that we have a laser beam behind the words that appear, and it looks really good in the Japanese version. But in the international version, there aren't any laser beam titles, but there's still that laser beam noise, and I always wonder what that noise was. And yeah. Then finally, I see the Japanese version. I'm like, oh, that's it makes why. so much more sense with that. As I remember growing up watching the movie and hearing those sound effects i figured it was just part of the uh, of the soundtrack yeah they they just decided to throw this and these these sounds in here yeah they just threw the sounds in there with the with the music to make it sound more sci-fi-ish or something like that but Mm -hmm. then when you actually watch the original title sequence which unfortunately is not available on the on any of the dvds or blu-rays that are over here because it just has the international version so you see that's like this makes so much more sense now and it looks a heck of a lot cooler because the backgrounds are kind of blank it's just close-ups of the various bits of technology in the nebulans command center yeah the giant command center control room uh what have you mm-hmm. which uh, the godzilla tower has uh 13 floors it does yes really interesting <laughs> it's like why did they I don't think it makes any re- you know importance in Japanese culture that number, but I guess it does with us. I guess so. The Godzilla f- building has thirteen floors. Yeah, the, it, we, because you can tell with the uh, uh, the numbers in the elevator. <laughs> Obviously, the Nebulans are not Trishkadelophobic, though perhaps they should have been. Yeah, they should have been a little bit more uh, unsure of themselves in general with their with their plot. But we'll see how this. Uh, we'll get back to that. There's uh, the part at the beginning of the movie where Gengo is uh, pitching these 
new monsters. Shukra and Mamagon. Yeah, to this uh, this guy, this really great. Oh, the editor at the desk. Yeah, the editor. I love that guy. Yeah, uh, as a. It's a great way. This whole first scene is a great way to start a movie. Oh yeah, actually, uh, as a connoisseur of comics and manga, it was. It's really cool to see a comic book artist be a hero in one of these movies. It's very refreshing. And also as a creative who's had to deal with editors, I feel Gengo's pain. <laughs> well, also, I think what's going on in this is that we're, we're sort of feeling some of Sekizawa's pain. Like this, <laughs> this, this scene, because I, at this time, Sekizawa was reportedly uh, having a hard time thinking of new monsters to invent. Because yeah. everybody's done all that. And so they're trying to think of something new that... Somebody people can actually grab a hold of that actually is different and interesting. And Sekizawa is like, there are no more monsters and all this. And then we have something similar going on with Gengo because he he pitches these two ideas and that for Shukra and Mamagon and they're they're really one dimensional ideas. So the editor says it's too simple. Yeah, kids are more sophisticated now. Gengo gives him a couple more ideas and he's and he's like, does that work? And the editor is like, no, it stinks. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I think it's immediately it seems like the, the movie gets all meta with us. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very interesting. And definitely comic book designer is one of the coolest jobs that we've seen of any character in any of these movies so far. Yeah, I remember the... It's, be- it's better than Toy Consultant. which was in two movies ago yeah Yeah. well and this is very much a reflection of what was going on i think from my cursory knowledge uh what was going on in japanese pop culture at the time comics and manga were becoming more and more popular so there were a lot of people who were getting into those and reading them legendary artists like i can't wish i could remember his name but you know the guy who created astro boy was the one who really got that whole thing started so they were really picking up steam with that right and so you want to get the godzilla series into uh into this too by uh, by getting comics into the into our plot but along this this train of thought we sekizawa didn't make this monster uh it was actually jun fukuda who uh created gaigen oh really yeah i I think it's a pretty good idea gaigen's a pretty cool idea i think there are a lot of people who are fans who actually as far as the enemies of godzilla go gigan's pretty far up there gigan is a very popular one he's pretty popular with me too yeah i gigan i feel like is one that fans have always liked but toho for some reason never felt the need to bring back until you got to final wars even though i think gigan is a very unique design he uh He's a, he's a cyborg, which is not a true cyborg, which is not something you see very often in these movies. And he has some bird-like features. He's very bizarre looking. Not in the same way that Hetera was, but it still has some very unique features. Some of the little visor eye and the beak and the little prongs that come out around his beak. He almost it has a little bit of a kind of like a predator mouth. You know how that kind oh, of one yeah, hinges a little does. bit. So I've always been a big fan. So I was happy to see him get brought back in Final Wars, and I love the and the, the little hammer clubs or claws. Those were really good. I think Gigan probably represents when I think of like a late Showa series monster. I think probably Gigan is what comes up. Mm-hmm. And the thing that that's really cool is we once again have Kempichiro Satsuma 
who was Hera in the previous movie, he is portraying Gigan here, will eventually succeed Nakajima and become Godzilla in the Heisei era. So here he is again, fighting his senpai, I guess you could say. And then also Angerus coming back is a really big plus. I really like that too. I love Angerus. I've always loved Angerus. And this, I think this movie more than any of the other ones it solidifies my my uh, my angerous love. As we were talking about comics here, I, I want the I want those speech bubbles back into the Blu-ray. They're I do too. I, I want them back. I want the, I want those plugged in because there is a, a sort of comic book little thread that's running through this entire movie. The whole movie honestly feels like a comic book, particularly a comic book from about that era. Yeah, nobody's running around wearing spandex. Or anything like that's not like superhero comics, but it's a very comic book sort of plot and very comic book sort of feel. Yeah, and I think the if you put the bubbles back in, I think it would just go along with the comic motif a little bit more. And I I think it looked cool. And I think it would actually make those if you want to call it infamous, those infamous talking scenes make a heck of a lot more sense because it's more like the the voice bubbles are just translating what Godzilla and Angerus are saying for you, as opposed to them literally talking. Yeah, I don't like the literally talking ones. Yeah, that, that the one's English just... language ones. Yeah, that, that's just goofy. I like the idea that it's just the bubbles are just popping up and saying, oh, this is what they're actually saying. I've read plenty of comics where the characters are speaking in another language, but the, the voice bubbles are in English for the sake of the reader. So it wouldn't have bothered me at all. No, and getting to uh, the Gengo character, he's possibly one of the coolest characters in the entire Godzilla series, but definitely the show for the Showa series too, uh, particularly. He's quite a good actor, and he's younger, and he's he's very expressive. Uh, he has a lot of facial expressions for us. He almost seems like a comic book character. Almost, I would hang out with Gengo. Gengo and I would get along very well. Yeah, it se- he seems like a very approachable kind of character. This one, this guy seems a lot more average. He's average in the sense that and he's... not the Godzilla Raids Again kind of average. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about here, where they're just ordinary, unremarkable people. Gengo is interesting. It's just that compared to all of these positions that most of the characters from the 60s films had, he's more average. I think we can thank Fukuda for, for getting and working with these actors very well because we have our young actors back. They're mostly youngish. Yeah. And and I think Fukuda, just like with uh, Ebura, they, he worked really well with those young actors and got them to, to perform really well. And I think this is the same thing going on in this one, which is why we think that there's, there's, some, there's some similarity between this and Ebura. And there's also... It definitely has a youthful energy to it. Yeah. And there's also the connection between this... And the, our 60s stories with the alien invasions from uh, 65 and 68. And so th- that's why we're mostly saying that this is a bit of a hybrid, really, of, uh, of Ebura along with uh, the, the more Monster Zero-ish, mm-hmm. the invasion of Astro Monster kinds of, uh, kinds of stories. But Fukuda really knew how to make a movie. He really knew how to film things. He knew how to film action really well. There's a lot of quick cuts in, in this movie. It doesn't look like it's very... It would have been very easy to make in the editing room. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't. No, it was probably rather painstaking, I think. 
there there are so many explosions in this. <laughs> Nakano loves mm. explosions. That's one of the defining characteristics of the 70s films, particularly uh, the ones done by Nakano after the death of Subaraya. He loved to blow things up. I mean, Subaraya did it too, but this guy really loves blowing things up. It, like, especially if this is all you've done in the series, is, is seen the ones that we've gone up to so far. This is really impressive. And there's just fire everywhere. And I think the fire makes it more real. Yeah. And fire is fire. I've heard it's stated that there are two things when it comes to suitmation and miniature work. There are two things that don't scale well at all, and that's fire and water. But the fire in this works really well. It's impressive. Yeah, definitely adds a, a sense of danger to it. One thing that's that gets brought up a lot when, when uh, this movie is discussed is a lot of fans make fun of the Godzilla suit in this because this is the fourth time that this particular Godzilla suit has been used. It was first made in 68 for Destroy All Monsters, so the dang thing's four years old, and they all say that, oh, it looks shabby, it looks like it's literally falling apart. And, you know, for the most part, I don't even really notice. I don't really either. Like, and until the end, after he's finished getting just pummeled, and then it almost fits then. Yeah, I would agree. Is, I never really noticed it otherwise. But, yeah, it's a... <clears throat> with this movie, we we were watching it, and, like, I said the how I'm not really all that upset about stock footage in this movie because it's used in the right ways and it's used in the right places it's not used in my opinion it's not used gratuitously for for gratuitously i would say it would have to be lots of scenes just thrown in like a lot more time than taking up a lot more time than what is in this movie the footage that i recognized was from rodan King Kong vs. Godzilla, Gator the Three-Headed Monster, War of the Gargantuas, Son of Godzilla, Destroy All Monsters, and Godzilla vs. Hedorah. And it's like, this is quite a bit. But it was interspersed with new footage, and it was clearly a way to keep cost under control, because this is another one where the cost is uh, down quite a bit. Uh, the budget's quite a bit down. But when we watched it together, I said that the stock footage is massaged into the rest of the movie. And I think that's a great way to describe it. I don't mind the use of the footage, and it doesn't particularly bother me. Uh, I mean, also, this was before DVD libraries, and so the theater was the only places you were going to see these. And so, yeah, I think it makes more sense. It's not like everybody's been watching all of the movies that have those footage in them at home all the time. That's something that I've been noticing a lot more the last few years, especially when you look at older films, say, the in particular, the 70s and before then. The movies were not <laughs> the movies were not designed to be watched over and over and over again on a small screen. Yeah, it's not like it came out three months after it was in the cinemas and then they could just go and buy it and then like go through all these little parts with a fine tooth comb and be like, Hey, there was that was in that and clearly there would be a an article on the internet showing up then saying, Hey, what's what's this? Yeah, or or a we cinema. want our money back for the portion of movie the movie that it was stock footage. Yeah, either that or a Cinema Sins video. I mean, you never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, Cinema Sins video saying, "Oh, stock footage, stock footage is going through every single, every single time and give us a time time stamp." 
And then <laughs> the counter marking up. But going back to the, the special effects a little bit, I think my favorite set on in this entire movie is the World Children's Land set that serves as the the final battleground for the kaiju. Right. We, with, see, the, we see it a lot. Yeah. The, the theme park with the Godzilla Tower as the centerpiece. And it's it's a wonderful looking set. It's actually the sort of set that we we haven't really seen before with these. We've, we've seen a lot of cities. We've seen a lot of open ground. We've seen mountains and ocean and obviously, but we've not seen a theme park. So we finally get to see Japanese kaiju rampaging through a theme park. Because you know, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, the climax was at a theme park. But this Which is a probably was Coney Island. Yeah. For Coney Island. Yeah. yeah. But this is the first time that I can think of where we see a Japanese film that does this. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting. And it's it's a fictional theme park, so they could do whatever the heck they wanted with it. So and the idea of a kaiju themed theme park is a really interesting idea. And actually I think stuff like that actually exists now in Japan. At least something like a smaller attractions. Yeah, yeah it is a real good idea. Isn't there like a Godzilla, like it's it's at the top of a building, and that's the, about the closest thing we have. To oh the yes, Godzilla there, there tower. is a there's a real deal uh, Godzilla mm-hmm. tower now of sorts. It's not yeah. like the one here. It's it's a replica of the Heisei Godzilla's head, and I think part of the body that uh, is at a hotel in Shinjuku. Yeah, and so it's and it's like peeking over the building, or it's, yeah, and yeah. you can get certain rooms where you can either. Uh, get a really good view of the of the tower or the the priciest ones you're going to be in a room where as soon as you open the window there's godzilla staring right at you right the the special godzilla suite at the top yeah that hotel yeah before we get on any further the i think it would be a good point to talk about the score the score in this is a little bit odd this is one of the only times i can think of where they not only use stock footage from previous movies, they're using stock music. So all the music in this is by Afukabe, but it's all either from other movies or they're borrowing it from some other projects that he did that were not film-related. The weird thing is, I don't really notice. The, the use of the stock music in this, the, they place it and utilize it so incredibly well that I don't realize that it wasn't composed originally for this film. Yeah, it fits really well and it mixes in just fine. And I think that that was with, with the challenges that these 70s movies have now of, of having to be made a bit more cheaply. You have to find artful ways in order to save money. And I think this the music was a good way to uh, to do that. And then you, we had the Ikufube music back for the first time since 1968. And so we get to hear those cues of that music uh, from from the more original Godzilla movies. And so we get to hear the the classic Ikafube scores for Godzilla anyway. The scene where Gengo meets Fumio, the guy who's in charge of World Children's Land, the when he's walking into the office and the guy has a see-through telephone. I just thought that was kind of funny. He's like, why do you have a see-through telephone? And then I thought to myself, well, you used to have a see-through Game Boy, so oh, why yeah. not? <laughs> Yeah, the 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 room that he's outside there, and he's we get to see him being so funny. Uh huh. <laughs> um, that's that's really good, and, and it's almost like a Charlie Chaplin thing that he's trying to do. <laughs> yeah, like when he when he rests his 
elbow on the globe and then falls over. But it, it's almost it's a very it's almost like he's a comic book character. Like yeah, I said is just something that actually it, it, something that that would it, it seems like it would happen. Yeah, and actually now that I think about it, the that set is actually pretty cool. I know one of the things that gets lobbied against the alien invasion films for for the seventies is that the alien sets start getting less and less elaborate, but I actually like the one in this one. Yeah, I like the one in this one, too. I'm a, I in particular love Fumio's little rotating chair of evil. That's yeah. what I call it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like he's just sitting there minding his own business and the whole thing just rotates around. I'm like, yeah, you are officially a super villain. And with then it this. goes to show how much money that they've supposedly been spending on this place and to have this elaborate of a layer for uh, Fumio. Yeah, that's very much a super villain lair. I love it. <laughs> talking about going with the comic book thing again. Yeah, I ha- now I have to I have to talk about this is actually one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Is <laughs> what I this is the the sort of scene that I will tell people even if they're not fans about, and that is the scene when Gengo gets mugged, quote unquote, because Gengo uh, picked up the tape that the, that she had dropped because she had stolen it from the Nebulans, and they're trying to get it back. So they sneak up on him in the uh, at night, and they make him think that he's. Uh, they put a gun to his back because they want him to get the, give the tape back, and then Genko just passes out after a few threats. Yeah, that's like another comic book behavior, I think. Yeah, I mean, he just like he doesn't even try. He just he just mm. passes out, and then it turns out that the hip uh, that the hippie just had a. Corn on the cob. Yeah, corn. <laughs> and it just, they cracked me up. I'm just like, that's how you, that's how you mug people in Indiana. You use corn, <laughs> pass yeah. it off as a gun. But I just, I love that scene. It just cracks me up every time I see it. Yeah. And that goes along with kind of what I was saying in uh, part one, where it's like, not every, everything is not as it appears in this movie. Something I really like about this movie is this is one of the only times I can think of where, the a large portion of it is just a mystery that the characters are trying to solve. Right, because we're we get interested in these guys that are in charge of children's land and then our characters actually go and end up trying to do that. Yeah, and there's all these weird things that don't add up that they're trying to figure out and it keeps getting weirder and weirder the more they look into it. It's almost like an episode of the X Files. Or Scooby Doo. Scooby-Doo. Actually, Scooby-Doo might be more apt. <laughs> Except they're... Well, actually, they do kind of unmask them later, just not literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it's just... It's really interesting, and it's actually... It's a genuinely good mystery, I think, and even a little bit creepy at points, because they figure out that the two guys in charge of the place are supposed to be dead. Right, and they, they go to the residence and... Then they they talk to the guy that's there doing the ceremonies and yeah, which is interesting because you kind of get a little bit of a glimpse into how the Japanese handle death and mourning and and such. It, that was kind of interesting. And there's also this wonderful joke in there because Gengo says, "Yeah, I I met him the other day and he was doing super advanced mathematics." And the other and the older guy mm-hmm. standing there and he says. Kind of looks around, like, make sure that the the mom or whatever doesn't hear him. He's like, he was the dumbest kid in class. That couldn't have been him. <laughs> and they did this really quick laugh and then immediately back, switch back to a somber. Yeah. Which, which is, that's pretty good. Yeah. Good job they do with that. So so that was wonderful. So it's 
it's a, so it's a great joke, but it's also building on the mystery and giving you a nice little character moment. It's a scene that does multiple things. Yeah, and it keeps. I think this. I think the mystery just functions as a way to a good way to keep the audience interested uh, through our first part because this is one of those movies where there's more of a slower build up. A lot of the things that I really love in this movie, besides all of the wonderful symbolism that we'll get to in the next section, but uh, I really love the action that's in this movie. It is really, really amazing. And at fifty-one forty-six or so into the movie, we see Ghidorah flying through that black smoke, and it's so pretty. Yes. And then the shot right after that has Ghidorah flying sort of in the back, while in front we have Gigan smashing stuff and all this fire everywhere. It's a great shot to get the two monsters together in, and it's really nice looking. But there's that's the thing with Fukuda. There's a lot of really good, uh, really a lot of good work visually in this movie. It's an extremely visual movie. At 55-59, there's that whole sequence with Ghidorah and Gigan getting attacked by some of the Mazer cannons. And I think it looks awesome, The whole that whole sequence does. But especially the parts at about 56-49 and 56-56 and 57-00, when Ghidorah and Gigan are walking, and then the camera is actually tracking along with them as the fires and explosions happens, and it's so brilliant looking. And watching that sequence, and especially that tracking shot, is one of the things that made me a fan of kaiju movies to begin with. All this fire and all all these explosions happening everywhere, cameras moving right along, just propelling the action forward. It's one of the coolest things I've seen in a kaiju movie. Yeah, actually, that uh, tracking shot, I... I misinterpreted it. I actually thought it wasn't a tracking shot with the kaiju moving. I thought the camera was going around them. At 5836, we're starting into the scene at the burning oil refinery. And we get that shot of Ghidorah and Gigan with all the fire and smoke around. And it's like, did you make more of a setting just right for a monster battle? I don't know if you could. Another great shot of Ghidorah and Gigan in front of all the flames is at about 5908. And then at 5911, uh, there's a part where Ghidorah uh, is there and Godzilla walks up to him. And then the camera gets closer and it goes back and forth between Godzilla and Ghidorah as they're going back and forth. And then at 5929, we get that stylistic man from uncle camera pan. And then we see Godzilla just tackling Ghidorah yes. this big, <laughs> and it's like wow this when I was a kid and even now I think oh my gosh that's so great that looks so awesome another really brilliant uh camera shot here is the shot at about 11330 and that's where Gigan is blocking Angerus from helping Godzilla this might be my favorite shot in the movie yeah Gigan is in the forefront and then behind Gigan in the in the background, there's Godzilla, and he's getting his butt completely kicked by the laser from the Godzilla Tower. It, it doesn't even show for all that long. But if you just press pause and just look at it, it looks so great. Right after that, about 1.13.40, Gigan and Angerus are shown in the same frame, and Angerus is trapped, and he can't get to Godzilla, and it looks so, looks so good. It's really worth it to just look at it. I think if you were to pause it at that shot, you know, the tower blasting Godzilla in the background, Gigan 
and Angerus in the foreground with Gaiken standing between the two of them. You paused it right there. I think you would have a comic book cover. Yeah, it looks really good. And then at one thirteen forty four, we have Angerus on the right side of the of the shot, and then Gaiken is on the left stopping him. And that that is really it's a great way to tell the story visually. You don't need anybody in a control room saying, "Oh no, Angerus has been blocked." <laughs> You know, you just do it with the camera, and everybody knows. And you don't need anybody to to, to tell us what's happening, like a sports announcer is. I just, I'm just sitting here thinking, can you imagine the amount of coordination they would have needed to get that that one shot? They probably spent some time on it. Yeah, because yeah. you would have had to figure out how to position the camera, and then you have to make the special effects in the background do what you want them to do. And then you have to get those two actors in those suits positioned just right, doing the right poses and everything so that the story is being communicated visually and making sure that their actions are in line with the, you know, the in-camera special effects and then making sure that you can put in the post-production special effects with the laser beam and everything. I just, for one shot, it's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. And then there's a harrowing part at uh, from one twelve oh four until about one fifteen thirty six. That's the part of the movie where Godzilla is absolutely getting just nearly killed by the blue laser coming out of the uh, Godzilla tower. And it's one of the most intense parts of any movie in this whole series. I remember when I was a little kid, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I mean, I was just in awe at at how epic that that part is. And that's again, that's like a comic book. Or, or anime. And then beating like, the hero down until he's yeah, completely exhausted. Yeah. And you're just pulling the audience in and getting them so involved in the action. And then it, it only, it's only about three and a half minutes, but it feels so much longer that, that we actually get to see Godzilla pretty much helpless. But I, I yeah. which I, is something you don't see often. No, and I, I think there are probably people in the audience that were like, oh my God, you know, they just can't, uh, couldn't take it. The part at 1.19.17, and it has, it's Gigan on the left and Ghidorah on the right. And Gigan does these two motions where he touches Ghidorah's wing and then he uh, does this like motion to the camera. <laughs> and, and it's like, I don't know when it is. But it's like some, you know, it's almost like something from an anime cartoon uh-huh. that that you do like this pose. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know what it is, but you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think the I know what you're talking he, about. He gets mm-hmm. his arms and he puts them together and pulls yeah. them apart from each side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I that little that little part of that is it's very um, endearing, I think. If you can call the villains endearing themselves to each other. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just by that, something and, you and that's by that point really the see by that point often. the the control tape had been destroyed, right? Yeah, because that's something that makes Ghidorah and Gigan interesting. Is even is for about the last ten minutes or so of the movie, they aren't taking orders from anybody. No, and they st- they yeah they get their mind control cut off and then they're a bit dazed. Yeah. At first, they don't know where they are. It seems like. Yeah, but they still continue to fight Godzilla and Angerus. And Gigan is the one that I find the most interesting because instead of working at the behest of some handlers, he just goes over and starts 
messing with the monsters for his own sadistic pleasure. Yeah, because he's like a natural jerk. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to call Gigan the, the, the Starscream of the Godzilla franchise. <laughs> if you're familiar with Transformers, Starscream was a, was a character who was... Uh, it took pleasure in the suffering of others, but once the tide turned against him, he turned into a coward. <laughs> yeah. And just would retreat and was constantly getting yelled at by Megatron and all of that. But those were things that endeared him, actually, to the Transformers fan base. But uh, so that's how I kind of look at Gigan because Godzilla is down. He's not getting up. And Gigan just goes over and just starts beating on him with his claw. It becomes the first kaiju to make Godzilla bleed. Yeah, it is. Which I'm sure that was a little bit of a shock for a lot of people watching this. This is the first time you see Godzilla bleed. Yeah, it's like super red. Yeah. It's like red paint. Yeah, it's, it's very even, bright. Yeah, it's not it's even... very obvious. Yeah, it's like not even real yeah. blood color. Yeah, but you can tell, even though Gigan doesn't you know, have like very expressive eyes or anything, you can tell he's just doing it because he just likes doing this. Mm-hmm. So it's like I said, Gigan is a, is a very interesting creature. And also with Ghidorah, you get to see something I don't think I've ever really seen, which is Anguirus is trying to sneak up on them to help Godzilla. But then he makes a noise. But then just one of the three heads looks over and shoots at him. Mm-hmm. The other two keep watching Gigan yeah, the one on torture the right, Godzilla. Yeah, the one on the right ends up doing like this 90 degree turn. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, it was like, why haven't we seen this more often? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would think if you have three heads, you can kind of delegate a little bit. So it was it, that was nice to see. But I think since we're talking about the action here, as I'm sure you'll get to it, I think my favorite part of the whole thing is when Godzilla gets his second wind later. Mm-hmm. I cannot begin to tell you. How many times, even as an adult, I watch this movie, how invigorating it is, how fist-pumpingly exciting it is to see Godzilla get that second wind after Gigan just throws him at what's left of the tower. And then yeah. he turns around and says, like, you want a piece of me? Yes, yeah, like instantaneous. <laughs> I'm going to get you now. You know, he's like, anime power-up time. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, Arr. and then Gigan's like, oh, fine. Oh, now you got some energy on with you. And then he starts running at him. And then Godzilla just turns around and tail whips him. Yeah. And I'm just like, yes. And that's also like a comic <laughs> book or anime sort of uh the, the last second comeback yeah yeah i know that's why i just i love it and then after that godzilla just just goes nuts he tail whips gigan he goes over and he starts beating on Ghidorah, and then gigan crashes into Ghidorah, <laughs> and then Angerus get gets in and yeah then they Angerus, just they just uh, go nuts getting him with the spines and everything oh yeah. geez and that that should be doing way more damage than it does, because all I can think is that hurt. That would hurt so much. Yeah, it definitely evokes a, an image of, of how painful that would probably be in the audience's mind. I know, but it's since it's happening to Ghidorah and Gigan, it's it, it's not horrific. It's it's exciting because mm-hmm. you're seeing the villains yeah. finally get their comeuppance. Another one of my favorite moves from the climax is when Godzilla does what I call the the triple headlock. Where he goes up behind Ghidorah, grabs all three heads. Yeah. And then after Angerus hits him with his back a couple of times, Godzilla judo flips him. Yeah. And it's an amazing image. And it's a very satisfying one. 
as well. Yeah, they fight more like humans. Yeah, it's more like a wrestling as the, match. As, yeah, as the movies uh, progressed in the seventies, one we really, really get these wrestling match. Yeah, uh, as much as the seventies films get knocked, I I think their fight choreography is actually really good. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, and it's uh, it's not we we're really getting like the polar opposite kind of fight from uh, as as was in Godzilla raids again. Yeah, very very different now. And yeah, and again that that's going along with the times. That's, Most definitely, that's what the audiences probably were gonna go for more at yeah. that time. And then the one last thing I, I wanted to bring up—it is kind of backtracking a little bit—but I love how when Gengo and his merry band meet up with the general, and they tell him these guys are aliens and they're controlling the monsters, the general just accepts it without question. Yeah, it's like it's it's great. That's yeah, it's just like cut through the BS. Just yep. Yep, I get it. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> well, it's just like the guy who's in charge of the UFO club in uh, the first Ghidorah movie, where he just says, oh, well, she fell through another dimension, and that's what happened. And we're, and we're instantly like, oh, okay, sure. This movie did do pretty well profit-wise, though. Oh, did it? Yeah, it made uh, it got quite a bit more tickets than, uh, our, I think, our last two, at least. Yeah, And Destroy so. All Monsters didn't do all that well, either. The fact that Ghidorah was in this, that had to have... Yeah, that was probably a big draw. Yeah. And so they, they realized, okay, yeah, there's certain ones that they that they want to start bringing back, and Ghidorah makes a lot of sense. This concludes part two of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we discuss uh, an issue that was either going on in Japan at the time the film was released, or, uh, if we're lucky, uh, issues that the movie brings up uh, on its own. And uh, in this case, we uh, have uh, this movie bringing up a lot of issues for us. I am really looking forward to this, because this is where I think you're really going to be able to see Brian's powers of analysis really go crazy. Yeah, we're going to try to see if we can blow some people's minds with stuff that I that we've never seen. Yeah. Or heard anybody say, let's see if we can do Yeah, and how much when we came across yeah, when we came across these ideas, suddenly this we saw this movie in a whole other light. And this is a Sekizawa story, so of course we're going to have some more some more dense stuff the, the, that we can bring up because there's um just like an all monsters attack. There's a lot in that one. Uh, that that really belies the fact that it's a children's film. Oh yeah, but in this one we get another alien invasion story from Sekizawa, and he 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 changes the formula of that around, and he he's created possibly the most complex Gojira story of all the movies in the series. It's a very nice multi-layered story. But one of the things that that pops out first here is this motif of uh, the corporations, and we get mm-hmm. that evil corporations. Right, and and like Children's Land is is uh, headquartered in Switzerland. Uh huh. I thought, okay, that's interesting. You know, late sixties, early seventies was definitely a a period of the corporation becoming much more powerful in in general. Corporations being actually more powerful than so powerful to the point that the countries that they're in can't even control them. And I think that's that's why we have Children's Land headquartered in Switzerland. And it makes it more mysterious. It makes it more nefarious. Distant. And distant, yeah. In When we were doing some of our research, we did find that 
there was a, a, a correlation between uh, McDonald's and this movie. Of all things. <laughs> well, it actually does make sense because, I mean, have you seen The Founder? Not yet. Oh, yeah, with um, Michael Keaton. It's Michael Keaton, yeah. Yeah, it's a good movie. And it's about McDonald's and about the the whole thing of Ray Kroc creating the McDonald's Corporation, which was totally different from the original McDonald's that he had partnered with. In our, in our research, we, it pointed out that in 1971, that was the first year that McDonald's branched out into Japan, which obviously there's that was only a year before this movie was released. And so the, I think that's, that probably was in the news quite a bit at the time. And so I imagine that, that, that is a connection there. But the, the other thing is it, this actually goes a lot deeper th- than just that. I mean, what we're talking about with market penetration, the way you could talk about it is it's kind of like an invasion of its own. If you want to, if, you know, you could characterize it as that it's in another country's goods and exports and it's making inroads into the marketplace of your own country. And that's, that's what market penetration is. And that's what was going on with McDonald's was that we were getting market penetration of, uh, in, in the form of McDonald's into Japan's uh, food market. And that's what's happening in the movie with Children's Land. We, we have uh, the, this outsider company coming in and then, and then creating this theme park for all the children that has all this weird stuff going on, like peace and monsters and all these other contradictions. But this is something that we haven't seen yet from anybody. And then that is, let's unpack this children's land a little bit. I mean, we had our, the guy who was doing the, the ceremonies for uh, Fumio, he, he said, children's land is this like some kind of a mental institution. <laughs> and I, like world children's land. Yeah. And then they said, no, an amusement park. And he's like, awesome. And then, Children's Land, it immediately made me think of Disneyland. Did Interesting. That, did that come to your it mind? It makes sense. Disneyland, the one in California, that opened up in 1955. So that had been around for 16 years by the time Godzilla vs. Gigan was released. So there's a little bit of a difference there. But by this time, Disney was a global media empire at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, that that had been well established by this time. And I wouldn't be surprised if the theme park in the movie was a reference to Disney. But also, uh, Disney World was built around this time, the one in Florida. Oh, really? Yeah. And then also, did, did you notice the monorail that's in this, in World Children's Land? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know when the monorail at Disney World in Orlando was completed? Let me guess, 1971? Yes. <laughs> that can't be a coincidence. It so certainly it, that seems... almost makes Kubo to a what? Walt Disney or something? And like the, Wouldn't Fumio and be Fumio, Walt Disney? No, Fumio's Eisner. Oh! Or his, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, yeah, Michael Eisner or something. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> of course, Eisner wasn't, you know, I don't think he was a household name at that point. But No, not uh, yet. But, but I think that there's definitely a Disney-esque connection it going on It makes sense if you're going like, to do something like this. That would definitely be the, a good model. The monorail got me tipped off to it because I've been to Orlando. I have as well. That got me thinking. And then I was like, wait a minute. 
when was Disney World completed? I knew when Disneyland had been completed. It was in 55, but I didn't know when Disney World was completed, and it was around this time. Wow. I thought, wow. There's another thing with this whole thing with Kubota and Fumio and, and the Disneyland, Disney World connection here. Getting back to, to market penetration, I mean, this is a kind of phenomenon that goes both ways between us and Japan and, and between every other two countries. You, know, you have... Uh, Stuff like Japanese cars doing so well in the United Hondas, States. Hondas, Toyotas. Yeah, and then you have uh, KFC along, and along with uh, McDonald's as sort of making big inroads into uh, Japan in, those, uh, in that market. And then Japanese technology coming in to the United States. And, and the, like in the form of radios and televisions and... Video games. And Sony and, and everything else. But this is really under the... Under the radar, a lot of this, if you see this movie for the first time, you're not going to be thinking about exactly these sorts of things. No, you won't. It is relatively subtle. The, the biggest thing is the scene that was the first time we see Kubota, and he uh, is in that office. And so we have the model of the children's land that's there on the table. Yep. And, and all these other, uh, all this stuff hanging around this office. And it's, it's very interesting the way we hear and, and, and the way this, the way the, the language works that comes out of Kubota. And it's very striking. Kubota uses so many different Japanese words that are actually just English words that have been Japanified. Like if this was an, it's almost like he's speaking international business speak. Almost. It's like, I think it was done on purpose. And if it was done on purpose, then it's incredibly smart. And for like, for example, Gojira Tower is actually Gojira Tower. And idea is Idea. Very good. We hear him say very yes. good. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Elevator is just not lift. Elevator. Yeah, yeah, not Lift. Yeah, and then uh, No is Notice. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Design. And like that's six Japanified English words, all coming from one character. But it's like this guy is a walking, talking symbol for globalization or something. It's very interesting. And if this is done on purpose, then it's a really genius way to do it. But there are not many moments when in these Godzilla movies when there are that many Japanified English words in, in that are packed together like that. At least at this point. I think uh, some of the... Later movies, we'll have more of them, but certainly I would not expect it at this at this point. And so that's where we start getting into the whole cockroach thing. Some people are quick to dismiss it, but it's actually some of the most subtle, interesting symbolism that I've ever seen. And yeah, I do mean subtle, because the, besides the fact that they, they literally seem to be cockroaches... The, the whole thing is just a living metaphor. And so w- with all this talk of market penetration and big corporations that, you know, some corporations, they're so big that their balance sheets are bigger than the balance sheets of some countries. So the cockroaches, to my understanding, they represent probably American businesses that specifically are multinational corporations. And I think the symbolism with this is that the cockroaches they're really hard to kill or they can't be killed. And so that that's, that's where our, that's what the direct symbol is. 
it's impossible to get rid of them. They're going to infiltrate your market no matter what. They don't take orders from anybody, including the country that they're even headquartered in. And so you're really at their mercy. And so I think that's where the, where that, the symbolism of the cockroaches is coming from. I don't think the cockroaches represent the American people. I think they represent American corporations, which is quite a bit different. But once these corporations get a foothold, it's almost impossible to get rid of them. And there's also infiltration on, on a similar level, because there's corn in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not an indigenous food to Japan by any stretch of the imagination. No. And also bananas. Also not native. Yeah. And yet these two things are in this movie. And it's like we have this, it, it, again, If we're pretty sure that that's why those two foods are in here. But it's, again, it's very clever symbolism showing the infiltration of all of these things coming into Japan. And I think it's uh, it's really cool symbolism. I, I wouldn't be able to write a story like this with all of this stuff no. going on at the same time. It's actually really cool. But, we, but it's like, it's everywhere. I think it's, that's what it's trying to get across is there's infiltration everywhere. We got the McDonald's, the Disney, the corn, the bananas. It, it's it's become part of, yeah, our, big things, part of little, our daily life. Big things, little things. They're everywhere, just like you said. Yeah, it's definitely a, a reflection of, of world trade and globalization. This is not a, the kind of movie that that you would think this kind of clever stuff would be going on in it. No. Instead, we have all this explosion and fire and everything. And yet, on the same side, of, you know, on the same different side of the same coin, you have all of this stuff going on, which I think is really incredible. So, Nate, what did you think of the whole peace thread that is running through this movie? Uh, there's a lot uh, that that terminology is thrown around a lot that they talk about having perfect peace establishing perfect peace on earth they call their whole operation with Ghidorah and Gigan at one point the peace plan and i think it comes from the fact that the nebulans were not the dominant species on their planet they admit that you get the impression that the dominant species on their planet was were, were rather human-like, but they destroyed their world and they ended up destroying themselves through pollution, which they mentioned specifically, but I would not be surprised if war was involved with that as well. And then the Nebulans, being insects, took over after the dominant species wiped themselves out and were trying to salvage what was left of their world, salvage what was left of the, of the technology. But yeah, found, and then the whole planet dies. Yeah, well, and then they found that they were too late and their planet is dying, so they need a new place to live. So, and the, the way I you hear Kubota and Fumio talking, you really get the sense that they are weary of all of this. They want a place to settle. They want a new world to live on. They want a new home because the place that where they were at had been ravaged so badly. In a way, they're sympathetic villains because you understand why they're doing this. You feel sorry for them in a way. It's just that they are resorting to extreme measures because I think they see humanity as being exactly the same as that dominant species with their pollution and their wars and everything. So they want to wipe them out, wipe the slate clean, and start over with their own world and their own civilization. I don't know. I, I think because they're cockroaches, it's very hard to be sympathetic towards them at all. But there's there's 
a thing that was mentioned by Stephen Hawking, and he said how any aliens that make contact with us, we shouldn't trust them because they're here for something besides peace. And that probably means they want our resources, uh, etc. And that actually resonates with me pretty well. I think the symbolism that's going on here is like, it's sort of double symbolism because cockroaches, yes, they're probably going to be the one thing that's left on earth after everything, you know, after we fast forwarded time forever. And, and so there, that makes sense. But also there's the symbolism of that too, because it's any species that would probably be coming from a, a distant earth-like planet they might be people who are coming for our resources, but they're also people who are symbolically, they might be the cockroaches from their own planet. Yeah. I was going to bring that up. The is it's, it's touched on at the end of the movie when the Gengo's girlfriend gets startled by a bug and they make a little remark about how, yeah, they'll, those will be the things that'll outlast all of us. And I think that was, it was part of the thinking, you know, with, tensions running so high with fear of nuclear war at this point right there were a lot of people thinking that if we do wipe ourselves out it'll be things like the cockroaches that just seem to be these incredible survivors you can't get rid of the things they're gonna outlive us all it works like you said on a couple different levels but getting back to the peace part of this it seems like it's yes it's peace for them to live in again but it's also it's almost like it's that insidious, empty, corporate kind of peace. It's peaceful for the corporation to just get everybody's money or, or resources or whatever with the least amount of trouble. Yeah. And specifically, it's mentioned as absolute peace, which that makes it even more uh, um, insidious, quite possibly. Yeah, it actually sounds very disconcerting when you start putting it that way. Absolute peace. Perfect peace. I remember at the end of the Cold War when there was the, the peace movement was sort of revived a bit. And the and I also remember the like in Super Mario World at the time, you know, the, and we, we'd have that little mini game at the end where he where we would um, the three way matching yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. Once we got our hundred points mm -hmm. every time and then what what would what would happen at the end? We'd have that little jingle of the in the music, and then Mario gives us the peace sign. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember that, and I remember that that a lot of companies used that, and then there was a big uh, sort of rallying point around using that concept. And I, but I don't. I think I remember that that Nintendo possibly did it the best. The corporate kind of peace is also really simple. There are forces at play going on in this movie, I think, between things that are simple versus things that are complicated. Like you have the, the Godzilla Tower, and that's really simple. And then you have Godzilla himself, and he's Which is not. pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. And then you have complex monsters in reality versus monsters that Gengo makes in the comics. And those two are really simple. And when the simple ideas are given to the comic book editor, he says it stinks. And when you give the same images to our alien invaders, they like them. Yeah. And so the aliens, they like stuff that's simple. 
and they're enamored with their technology. Yeah. They're, they're dependent on it, in fact, yeah. and they rely on it to basically do everything for them. Much like the Zillions were. Mm-hmm. And then with our humans, our protagonists, they're, they're not simple, really. They seem to be, but they're not. I think it's interesting how we have this, this simple versus complex kind of setup. And, yet, and they're using the images of other people so that they don't have mm-hmm. to look like themselves so they can get away with all this. And then they build the Godzilla tower as it, which is supposed to look like a theme park attraction, but instead it's not, it's that's not what it appears either. Yeah. It's a front for their operation. Yeah. And so a disguise. Yeah. And so they're, they're wearing disguises and then the Godzilla tower is a disguise full. This whole thing is full of very interesting Sekizawan symbols and it really makes you think a lot Mm -hmm. and all this talk of symbols that leads us into how godzilla is looked at in this movie because he's really this one and and the last one too i think godzilla has become a a pop culture icon something that you know we've said from the get-go with this podcast is godzilla in that first movie single-handedly created kaiju as a genre, and tokusatsu. And by this point, especially when you look at in the 60s, every studio in Japan, whether on on the big screen or on television, was trying to get a piece of the kaiju pie. They were all making their own kaiju. But Godzilla managed to stand head and shoulders above all of them. And again, as we've said before in this podcast, it's because he's a versatile creation. He means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I made a list of this when I was uh, when I was uh, preparing for this podcast, and I came up with six right off the top of my head. Uh, those being an atomic allegory, a force of nature, a la a natural disaster, a B-movie monster, a superhero, an embodiment of the World War II dead, and a victim of the nuclear bomb. All of those are right off the top of my head. The thing is, is that it wasn't just that. The image of Godzilla had become an icon as well. Just for example, when, you know, when Subaraya started as a production company and they started doing stuff on television, they reused, maybe it was done for practical reasons, but it's undeniable, you know, the image of this. They repurposed a couple of Godzilla costumes from the movies, doctored them up with horns and frills and all that, and used them as completely different monsters in both Ultra Q and Ultraman. And it's really interesting to watch that episode of Ultraman because it's a Godzilla costume from Mothra vs. Godzilla. It's been spray-painted green, and they put a big frill on it and around its neck, and then Ultraman has a fight with the thing. It, the roar even sounds similar to Godzilla. So you're essentially getting Ultraman versus Godzilla, but it's not the same monster, obviously. On the other side of the Pacific, in 1969, you had this Canadian filmmaker named Marv Newland, who made this very simple two-minute short that was called Bambi Meets Godzilla. Have you ever seen that, Brian? Yes. Okay. It's all hand-drawn animation, and you just see a deer standing there grazing, and then suddenly Godzilla's foot comes down and crushes it, and that's the big joke. It's considered a classic to a lot of animation fans, and even got went so far as to be selected for preservation by the 
Academy Film Archive in 2009. Godzilla had become a huge deal by this point. But again, look what's going on here. You have this incredibly deep, versatile creation that's now being marketed and simplified. What started off for Japanese audiences as a sympathetic character because of his vaguely humanoid design and his lumbering movements, he looked like a victim of the bomb, just like they were. So you have Gengo pitching them creatures like Shukra and Mamagon. There's no ambiguity to them. You know exactly what they are. Because of that, it does two things. It makes them more marketable. It makes them safer, but it robs them of any sort of versatility and meaning. Do you think that there's also some sort of symbolism going on where these cockroaches, they they could even be a symbol for the other movie companies in Japan that have been doing all these kaiju films. And this is a way to sort of say that Godzilla is the one that has all this meaning. All these other ones don't. I think you could certainly say that because, I mean, let's think about it. I mean, there was only really one monster who was giving Godzilla any competition at this point. That was Gamera. Mm -hmm. All the other kaiju that were getting movies made, they were one and done. And even Gamera, by comparison, is much simpler compared to Godzilla. There isn't such a heavy backstory with Gamera. There's not as, yeah, there isn't a heavy backstory with Gamera. I mean, you say Gamera, what's the first thing that pops into people's heads? Friend to all children. children. But with Godzilla, everyone has different ideas about who Godzilla is. Now, I will admit, when you get to the Shusuke Kaneko films in the 90s, they were branching out from that and they were making Gamera something different. But by this point, he was a much simpler, more mark, I guess in some ways, more marketable version of Godzilla. It makes me wonder if Sekizawa was doing a little bit of a commentary on what companies, the studio, were looking at it, because Godzilla is this big marketable thing that they can use to make money. And lots of toys. It's and like, lots of toys. Yeah. So Yeah, it could be it could be some kind of meta commentary on that even. You know, it's like Sekizawa went and saw the all the toys and everything and thought, well, there's a lot more to Godzilla than just God, this is Godzilla Rar, I'm gonna get you. Yeah. I mean, even in the in the previous movie, they had they actually were showing Godzilla toys, real Godzilla toys. Godzilla is so huge that now they're putting their own products yeah. into the movies. Yeah. It's almost like they're advertising themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit crazy if you stop and think about it. I mean, that would be like making a Superman movie and Superman runs into a kid who's playing with an action figure of himself. Mm-hmm. And it's an actual action figure you can go buy in the store after you go see the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this movie, is, it's, like, it's like it's a reflection on, on how far Godzilla has come to, by, to, you know, at this point. Yeah, and they were trying to make him safer and friendlier, mm-hmm. you know, at least in terms of how they're trying to market it. There was some softening of him in the movies as well, but as we've discussed, that was a natural progression. It was something that needed to happen. Uh, When Godzilla sees the tower made in his image, this commercialized version of himself, what does he do? He hits himself in the head to clear his vision. It's almost as if he's looking at this thing, what? Yeah. Is this what I've become? Mm -hmm. What have I become? He's looking in a mirror and seeing a reflection and it's not what he thought. And then what happens next the nebulans attack Godzilla with a laser beam that emits from the tower's mouth. 
like a toy imitating the mm-hmm. king of the monsters. The aliens, who are disguised as human businessmen, are using the technology to command monsters to do their own nefarious purposes, nearly kill Godzilla with this facsimile. So they are forcing monsters to do what they want them to do and not to act under their own power, not to be true to themselves. The story is saying, no, you have to let them be themselves. Yeah. So you could say that this is not unlike studio executives finding ways to market Godzilla as a product devoid of any deeper meaning. Mm-hmm. But not just Godzilla, but any sort of property, just trying to make it fit into whatever mold you want it to be, what they want it to be. Yeah. As opposed to letting it be what it is. Mm-hmm. And then it's interesting then that it takes several ordinary people, including a misunderstood artist, to save Godzilla from certain death at this point. Because if they hadn't blown up the command center... Yeah. Godzilla probably would have been dead. Right, and the aliens would have won. Then, half-dazed, Godzilla destroys what's left of the tower after he's thrown at it by Gigan. He just, he stumbles around and he knocks the rest of it over because all they did was they blew up the head. So the command center was gone and they could and the laser cannon was gone. And so once it's destroyed, Godzilla gains his power back. Yeah, he gets a second win and then he trounces all of uh, all of the space monsters. The true Godzilla, not the commercial facade, could fight unencumbered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's where that symbolism is going, is that you have to destroy that image, and then Godzilla becomes strong again and becomes himself again. Yeah, so you. So that's why I think it's, it's so very interesting, because you have this phony version, this commercialized image right. that's being used... One, to disguise nefarious purposes and also to make money, and it nearly kills him. And then Godzilla himself has to destroy it in order for him to have that out of the way, regain his power, and then go save the world. Yeah. So he gets to be who he is. It, it's it's a little ironic to think that, you know, this is a Godzilla who's already changed, as we've discussed. He isn't quite what he was in 1954, but he's still, you know, the Godzilla, the real Godzilla. Not whatever is being peddled at the toy stores. Yeah. And so there's just there's just so many things going on with the story that you would not think at all that that is. I mean, the, the first time you see this movie, I highly doubt you're going to be finding all of this meaning in it. Yeah. And that's it's something when I stop and think about it, it brings a lot of interesting thoughts to mind because marketing has become such a huge thing with particularly with products particularly products that are attached to franchises and they have to use shorthand in order to get those things out and usually that means appealing to the lowest common denominator if they're going to market a product towards you or a character towards you they're going to use simplified terms in order to get it towards you in order to get you to buy it and they are not going to talk about whatever deeper meaning might be attached to it. No, because that's going to get you to think more about it. And they don't really want you to think about it. They just want the money. Yeah. I think it's honestly really genius what Sekizawa is doing here. Yeah, and whatever parts of the story that, that Kimura did, too. Because this, this almost sounds a little bit like Matango, which Kimura also did, that had to do with globalization and had all this deep symbolism going on in it. But yeah, this is an incredibly well-crafted 
story that is has a full of deep meaning and that actually makes sense. Like there's all these all these things going on and they actually do come together in the end to make sense. Yeah, as I said at the beginning of this episode, this might be the, the one of the if not the most underestimated out of all of the Godzilla movies. It's just it has that unfortunate position of being made at an era when the series was on the downfall. And so it kind of suffers with all the rest of them. I I think this is my favorite one out of all the 70s movies. I also think it's probably my, possibly my favorite in the whole series. How would you rank this with Sekizawa's other scripts? I know when we've talked before off air, you were speaking very highly of it. I think this has the most going on in it of any Sekizawa script. And it's definitely the most, it, it does things in the most subtle way. And and it, it really belies itself because there's, I mean, we have cockroaches going on here. And yet the symbolism behind them has so much going on in it. This may not be the best Sekizawa movie you know, no. out of all the whole series, but I think this is the best script of any ones that he wrote. Last thing that I think is cool is how this story actually posits that there are lots of other planets just like Earth in the universe. I don't know if that was as generally accepted back then as it is now. But they got no, it right. No. The I think Star Trek was positing that mm-hmm. by this point, and that was the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. But it isn't something that you were necessarily seeing a lot. Yeah, but this story actually did get it right that there are there is possibly alien life out there and it is because there are a number of planets that are just like Earth or at least really close. And then then it, it goes a little bit further with saying, okay, what happens when one of these planets dies? Who's left on it? Can they escape and what do they do? And what do they want out of it? And I think that's that really is a one of the, if we ever do make contact with aliens, I would say that that would possibly be that kind of uh, situation. And the the fact that they would probably be, the, they could possibly be the cockroaches of their own planet because they survived it the longest and then they became the sentient life. Well, I think we've discussed those issues uh, as much as we can, but then there's, uh, there's one last thing we wanted to get in and that's about the 1972 uh, Winter Olympics. Because uh, we we covered uh, the Olympics that happened in '64, uh, but uh, we were able to uh, do a little bit of reading up on uh, about the Sapporo uh, Winter Olympics. Sapporo was up against uh, Banff, Canada, Lattes, Finland, and then uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, for uh, the pick. And actually, Sapporo won out of those. Sapporo was originally supposed to have the 1940 Winter Olympics. But Japan resigned from that post after they invaded China in 1937, and then the 1940 Olympics didn't end up happening anyway. But all the cities that were supposed to have Olympics during that time actually did end up having it later on. This was actually the first Winter Olympics where Japan won medals. And they won three, and it was all from uh, one competition, which I believe was uh, jumping. Ski jump, I remember reading that. Mm Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union, East Germany, Switzerland, and the Netherlands ended up getting the most. The The Olympics themselves were very successful and uh, were a great boon to Sapporo. That would fit really well with uh, Japan's GDP growth because uh, in 1972, Japan's economy grew 8.41%. And so another nice 
high uh, year for Japan. Before we close the ep- uh, this episode out, it's a it's a little bit of a, a bittersweet moment now. Actually, watching this movie and talking about it on the podcast because this was the the last time that Hiro Nakajima played Godzilla uh, in any of these movies. He had done it for eighteen years, uh, starting in nineteen fifty four with the original. Yeah, every single movie that every we've single done movie for God- mm-hmm. in the Godzilla series, he's been Godzilla. Yeah, before. Knowing that was just a nice little bit of trivia, but unfortunately, we have uh, lost Nakajima-san. He he died last year. It was um, a shock, and yet it wasn't. His health had been declining for a while. I had been hoping that he would have lasted just a little bit longer. One of my personal regrets is the actually the last convention that he attended as a guest, was actually here in Indiana, in Indianapolis, uh, the Days of the Dead, um, which ironically was, I think, during my birthday weekend. I didn't go see him. I had the opportunity. I didn't go see him. I figured I would wait until he was at a at a, a Comic-Con, because there would have been more things there besides Nakajima that I would have been interested in seeing, but he didn't last long enough. It's a great loss for most fans. He is Godzilla. Yeah, there really is no other. And I mean, it's like talking about if you're talking about James Bond and you talk about everyone loves Sean Connery because he was the first. He was the one who laid the groundwork that everyone else built off of. And I think the same thing can be said for Nakajima. But it wasn't just Godzilla. He did a lot of other things. He did have face roles occasionally in movies. He he had some bit parts in some Kurosawa films. He played other monsters. He was King Kong and King Kong Escapes. He was Gyra and War of the Gargantuas. He even got to be Mothra once in you know, a, a Mothra caterpillar costume in the original Mothra. I mean, he the, the guy did a whole lot of stuff and really just put himself through hell playing these characters. Quite, quite a long career, yeah. Yeah, but he was always very humble about it. After this movie, he just stopped suit acting and he just, I think he became a driver on the, the Toho set, just kept working for Toho in a completely different capacity. And was always proud of the work that he did. And the funny thing is, no one would have known who he was on the street. For all of us in the fandom, he's a superstar. But most people wouldn't have known who he was. Right. And in most of these movies, he doesn't even get credited for playing Godzilla. No. So in a lot of ways, he's doing a thank- he was doing a thankless job. A very hard, very... Uh very physically demanding one. Yeah. That. And that was what he cited as his reason for getting out of it is because he was in his forties by this point. It was just too physically demanding for him. It was time for him to retire. So I can totally understand it, but I, I have to admit watching the end of this movie, when you have that, that one original song mm-hmm. in the soundtrack is playing, you have Godzilla and Angerus swimming off into the sunset like they're cowboys in a western yeah it does have that feel to it yeah there's a bittersweetness to it now because i'm saying goodbye to godzilla in a way Mm -hmm. when i watch that yeah early on in my fandom when i realized uh, how many movies uh in the godzilla series that there are i was really amazed to find out just how long godzilla had been played by just one guy it's really an accomplishment I would definitely say that he's quite 
an amazing figure and always will be in the entire uh, history of Godzilla for sure. So because of all of that, we uh, both Brian and I would like to dedicate this episode in his memory. Nakajima-san, you'll always be Godzilla to me. Yeah, those were some very powerful words, Nate, and uh, we will always uh, remember Nakajima-san. Our next film is going to be uh, our continuation of our 70s movies, because we have a few of them left. Uh, this next one is going to be Godzilla vs. Megalon. Oh, yeah. That one. Yeah, people. That one. Very different sort of movie. <laughs> We'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons Kiyoe Toshi and Sean Stiff for pledging at the Kaiju Visionary level. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara.